22 years ago, and Margo said I had been on staff for 11 years, um, and she said, I don't feel old enough to do that. I, I feel really old saying anything that happened 22 years ago. But 22 years ago, my wife and I became parents for the very first time. It was about 22 years ago last week. And I remember, I remember people warning us at that time. They said, they said things like, don't blink. Don't blink because before you know it, they're going to be all grown up. And you know what the funny thing is? In the midst of raising children, it doesn't feel that way, does it? You know? The days literally feel like years, right? But the years fly by like days. It seems like just yesterday, just yesterday, that I was reading bedtime stories to my boys. It, it seems like just yesterday that I had enough hair on my head to let it grow out. <laughs> so, um, aren't they cute? Oh, man. They're still cute, but different. <laughs> so, so, yeah, man, time absolutely flies. It, it literally feels like, it feels like my wife and I, it feels like we blinked. We blinked, and suddenly we have three young men who eat us out of house and home, you know? Well, for the past, I guess, several weeks now, uh, about seven or eight weeks now, we've been making our way through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, and we've been reading and studying the infancy and the childhood narratives of two key figures, John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. But this morning, as we, as we leave chapter two behind and we begin our, our time in chapter three, in, in what feels like literally the blink of an eye, from one verse to the next, from one verse to the next, John the Baptist and Jesus, they're all grown up. They're not the little babies anymore. They're not the 12-year-old Jesus running away from his parents in Jerusalem. No, they're all grown up. In fact, in Luke's gospel in chapter 3 later, we're not going to get there today, but later in this chapter, he says that at this time, Jesus was about 30 years old. If some of you are parents, you know what that's like. You blinked, and now your kids are 30 well, in this next major section uh, that we're going to be looking at in Luke's gospel, because this is the beginning of a new section, Luke is going to focus on some of the final preparations as Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. Now, this morning, we're actually going to be focusing not so much on, on Jesus, we're going to be focusing on John the Baptist. We're going to look at just the first 20 verses where Luke is going to be writing about the ministry and the message of John the Baptist. So let's begin reading in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to the, uh, John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, as we've already seen in Luke's gospel, Luke is very, very deliberate about placing the events that he writes about in a very real time and place. 
And as Luke is beginning to describe the ministry of Jesus, as he's beginning this whole new section and really setting up the rest of this book, he wants to make sure that his reader knows exactly when these things took place. You see, after 400 years, over 400 years of silence, where God had stopped speaking to his people through the prophets, Luke says that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. A new prophet was on the scene. In fact, I don't know if you remember from chapter one, but when his dad prayed over him, do you remember what he said? Uh, I think it's in, in verse 70 something, mid-70s in chapter one, but he looks at him, he's holding his baby boy and says, you're gonna be the prophet of the most high. You're gonna go before him. And so now he has come. And so Luke says, let, let me tell you when this happened. This is when it all happened. The word of God came to John in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, we know from history that Tiberius began his reign after the death of his stepfather, the first Roman emperor. Do you remember his name? Caesar Augustus. Good job. Caesar Augustus. This was the, this was the, the, the emperor at the time when Jesus was born. Well, he died in 14 AD. His stepson, Tiberius, began to reign. So that would put uh, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius would put us right around 28 or 29 AD. But Luke doesn't stop with Tiberius. He gives us six other names here as well. It's a long list of names, but he really wants you to know, you know what time this happened. He's already given you that. It's about 29 AD, but he's also setting up what was life like at that time? So he gives us six other names. And the next person that he lists is Pontius Pilate. He's the governor of Judea. Now, this is probably someone that you've heard of. If you've heard the story of, of the death of Jesus, you've probably heard the name Pontius Pilate. I often wonder if, if maybe Tiberius Caesar, he, he's sort of lost in history. Most people are like, who? Tiberius who? You know, nobody really knows who Tiberius Caesar is. But Pontius Pilate? Oh, we've heard of him. I, I think Tiberius would be furious to know that Pontius was more popular than, than him. But uh, as, as familiar as we are with the name Pontius Pilate, did you know, did you know that for centuries, for centuries, uh, skeptics of the Bible accuse the gospel writers of making up a, fic a fictional character named Pontius Pilate. And the reason they accuse them of that is because there was no records of this Pontius Pilate anywhere to be found. He, he was just like this name that they were like, yeah, okay, well, other than Matthew, you know, Mark, Luke, and John, like who, who is this Pontius Pilate guy? And that is until 1961. 1961, in Caesarea, over along the coast of the Mediterranean, there was an inscription that was uncovered. It was actually on a stone that had been repurposed. They had repurposed this stone and used it in the building over in the, um, the amphitheater in Caesarea. And on this inscription is the title of Pontius Pilate, uh, excuse me, his name, Pontius Pilate, but also his title, Prefect of Judea. 
And it appears to be some sort of a stone that was inscribed as a gift in honor of Tiberius. Pretty fascinating, right? And with that discovery, and with that discovery, once again, the biblical record was confirmed as being historically accurate. And by the way, there's still other names. There's still other names in Scripture like, well, we don't have any records of that name. We're going to talk about one in a minute, Lysanias, okay? Just give it time. Just give it time. For, for 1,900 years, you know, after the life of Christ, nobody knew if this Pontius Pilate truly existed. Well, guess what? He did. He did. Now, the next three names that Luke lists are Herod, Philip, and Licinius. By the way, there's a lot of Herods listed. It's a messed up, complicated family, by the way. It's a fascinating study. It's very confusing to try to even keep up with all the different, the different Herods. But he says that these three here, Herod, Philip, and Licinius, were all tetrarchs. Now, a tetrarch was literally means a ruler of a fourth. That, that's what it means, a ruler of a fourth. But it came to also mean a ruler of a part. And each of these guys ruled a portion of the land that was previously under the rule of Herod the Great. After Herod the Great died in 4 BC, the area that he ruled was divided between his three sons. There was Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip. So his land was divided between these three. And Archelaus... Archelaus, he, he, was a, he, was a wild, he was a wild, he was a crazy man, okay? In fact, Archelaus was so wild, that's why when Mary and Joseph came back from Egypt, they didn't settle in the land of Judea where Archelaus was ruling. They went north to Galilee where Antipas was ruling because he was slightly less crazy than his brother Archelaus. Well, Archelaus was, was ruling over the land of, of, of Judea, okay, and Samaria. But he didn't last very long because... Uh, Augustus Caesar deemed Archelaus to be uh, unfit to rule. And so Caesar Augustus in, in, I think it was 6 AD, in 6 AD, he had Archelaus removed from office and banished from the land. So Archelaus is gone. And after Archelaus was removed from the area of Judea, after that point, the ruling uh, power in that region was handled by prefects. Prefects like Pilate. In fact, uh, Pilate was the fifth uh, prefect to rule in Judea after Archelaus was removed. The other two sons uh, were uh, no, yeah. The other two sons was Antipas. Antipas was in the area. I think you can see it on the map up there. In it's kind of like a purplish pink color on on this map. It's in the area of Galilee and Perea, and that's where Antipas was ruling. And then Philip ruled the area, it's, um, well, it's in that orangey kind of color there, uh, which is kind of north and east of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Philip was ruling. And then as far as Licinius goes, like I said, we don't really know much about this guy other than that he was ruling in the area of Abilene, uh, which is, um, which is uh, just in the southern part of, of Syria there, above the area that, that Philip uh, was ruling. So, but he, here's the thing that you need to know uh, about these tetrarchs. These tetrarchs all ruled under the authority of Rome, okay? 
They didn't have any power other than what was granted them to them by Rome. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, all they really cared about was maintaining their power and position. These, these tetrarchs, they didn't care about the people. What they cared about was the power and the prestige that came with their, with their titles. So we have Tiberius Caesar. We have Pontius Pilate. We have these four tetrarchs. And then finally, he gives us two more names, uh, Annas and Caiaphas. These are the high priests of the Jewish people. And guess what? Once again, they are appointed by Rome. Yeah, these guys are appointed by Rome as well. So do you think there was any corruption? Absolutely. You think there was vying for positions of authority? You know, trying to keep Caesar happy because I want to be the high priest here in, in Judea. Notice what Luke says, though. He says that the word of God came to John during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas. Now, what's interesting uh, about that is that there was really only one high priest at any given time. There was only one high priest who was ruling at any given time. But after Annas had been removed from his position as high priest, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was eventually given the position. However, even though Caiaphas was technically the high priest, everybody still looked to Annas as the real uh, leader, uh, spiritual leader in Jerusalem. So even though Caiaphas was, was in charge, really it was Annas, his father-in-law, who was calling the shots from behind the scenes, kind of like a, a spiritual mafia or something in, in, in Jerusalem. In fact, did you know in John chapter 18, in John chapter 18, when Jesus is arrested, they bring him to, on trial, right? They bring him first to Annas, the high priest. It says that in John 18. They brought him to the high priest, Annas. Then after Annas questioned Jesus, the text says that Annas then sent him to the high priest, Caiaphas, because at the end of the day, Annas was really the one that people looked to as the leader. So, so this, is the, this is the backdrop. Luke is, is setting the backdrop for the story of John the Baptist and the story of the life of Jesus. And it's so much more than just a timestamp. It's more than that. It's more than just like, well, in around 28 or 29 AD, John the Baptist came on the scene. It's more than that. He is setting up uh, the a picture of the social, the, the political, and the, the religious, spiritual climate of the day. It was a time when Rome was ruling, and, and there were, the authority, the political corruption, the spiritual decline was on a, a peak. And this is the background. This is the time when God's silence was broken, and the word of God came to John the Baptist in the wilderness. Now, we're not going to talk a lot about the wilderness this week because we're going to talk more about that uh, next week. But just, just really quickly, wilderness, it's not the main wilderness, okay? It's, there's not like big trees and, you know, you, you get lost because you can't see beyond the... No, it's nothing like that. It's a desert, okay? It's a, it's a, it's a foreboding place, very hot, very dry, and, and it just seems to go on for miles and miles and miles. And you think, how could anything live 
there. Well, God's word came to John, and we read in verse 3 that he, John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's talk about John the Baptist for, for just a minute. This, he's a crazy dude, you know? John the Baptist is a really interesting guy. I really want you to get a picture of, of John in your mind as you read this story. Because whereas Luke is really just kind of focused on his ministry and his message, Matthew and Mark give us some additional insight about John. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, we're told that John... John wore a garment of camel's hair, sounds nice, and a leather belt around his waist, and as if his wardrobe wasn't odd enough, his food was locusts and wild honey. John was interesting. He, 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 he didn't look like everyone else. That's why they describe it. Like, this guy looked different. Let me tell you what he looked like. He, he, he wore camel's hair and a leather belt, and he, had, he ate locusts and, and wild honey. I always, picture, I always picture John with a really big beard. You know, maybe he kept it trimmed. I don't know. But I picture him like this unkempt, really big, scruffy beard and probably had like leftover like dried up honey and maybe some locust legs hanging over at his lip here. You know, that, that's the way that... That I did. This, is, this, is, this is the guy that God chose to be the forerunner to the Messiah. Certainly not what we would expect, is he? I mean, if you had never read the Bible, if you'd never read the Bible, because so, we grow up with this, right? We read the Bible, we know the Bible, we know that John is the forerunner to the Messiah. But if you had never read the Bible and God said, I want you to describe what you think the forerunner is going to look like, does it even come close to this? Does it even come close? We would never draft it up this way. But you know, that's one of the things that I just love about God, don't you? You know, while we are so often, we're so easily swayed by outward appearances, aren't we? So easily. God is always, always, always looking where? He looks at the heart, right? And in God's eyes, in God's eyes, John was the greatest. John was the greatest. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one. You want to know what every great follower of Jesus Christ has in common? What do they all have in common? They have a heart that is fully devoted to him. You want to be great? Devote your heart fully to Christ. That certainly describes John. But, but John's clothing style was more than just a, a personal preference. His clothing was meant to remind the people of someone that they had all grown up reading about. They'd read about this guy for a long time. He was one of the heroes. In fact, I told you he's one of my heroes. We did a study uh, about a year ago on the life of Elijah. You guys remember that study? In 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah is described this way. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. John the Baptist and Elijah clearly shopped at the same boutique, you know? They both went shopping in, in the same stores. You know, to see John the Baptist in person 
you know, in, 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 you know, around 30 A.D., 29 A.D., to go out and to see John the Baptist in person was like seeing an Old Testament prophet stepping off the pages of the Scriptures. You know, it was like going to a living history museum, like the, was it the New Orleans, right? You know, you go there and like, whoa, where did this guy come from? But how fitting, how fitting that John would look like Elijah because, listen to this, this is what God said through the prophet Malachi. This is the last prophet to speak before the 400 years of silence. Malachi said in chapter 3, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And then he said, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That was in chapter four of Malachi. To see John, to see John the Baptist out there in the wilderness or down by the, the, uh, the Jordan River, everything about him screamed, the messenger is here. The messenger has arrived. This is the one who is going to prepare the people for the coming king, for the coming of the Messiah. And what you need to know about John's ministry, John's ministry, in one word, was preparation. He had a ministry of preparing the people for the coming of the king. So in verse 3, it says that John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the word repentance is the Greek word metanoia, metanoia. And it literally means, it literally means a change of mind. To prepare the people, John was, was calling them to change their mind and to go in a different direction. You know, I think sometimes, I think sometimes, at least for me, sometimes when I think of repentance, I think it's, it's, it's just about being sorry. It's about saying, oh, I feel so sorry for what I've done. But while it typically, well, repentance typically includes being sorry, true repentance is more than just feeling sorry for what you've done. True repentance involves a change of mind and a decision to go in a different direction. You need to change your mind and need to go a, a different way. You need to repent. That's the message that John is giving to the people. True repentance, true repentance tr uh, leads to a change, not only in your mind, but a change in your behavior. That's what it does. And so John is out here. He's saying, hey, listen, you need to change your mind. You need to go in a different direction. You need to turn away from the way you're living. You need to live for God. And, and people said, Yes, I agree. I, I want to repent. And those who said yes, John baptized in the Jordan River as a symbol of their repentance. He, he baptized them in the water. Now, we're so familiar with baptism because, again, we've grown up around it, right? And I think some of us think that, wow, yeah, that's a Christian thing, right? But it predates Christianity. It predates them. And what you need to know is, is that for these Jews to step into the water and be baptized by John, 
this was an incredible act of humility. It took an, an immense amount of humility to say, you're right, John, we've been wrong. It's time for us to turn and, and, and turn to God and be baptized. And here's why. Here's why. Do you remember a, a few weeks ago when I talked about uh, if, if, a, if a Gentile decided that they wanted to become a Jew, if they were a male, the first thing they had to do was to be circumcised because circumcision was an outward sign of the relationship between God and his covenant people. So they had to be circumcised if they were a male. There was a second step to becoming a Jew. If a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, then the second step was they had to be baptized by immersion. They had to be baptized in the water. Any Gentile who wanted to convert was required to, as an outward sign, a symbol of their cleansing and their turning away from their former life, that they were now turning to God, to, to Yahweh, right? They had to go through this immersion, this baptism. So John, John was calling these Jews to do something that only Gentiles had been required to do. Do you understand what that's like for a Jew? You're asking me to be like a Gentile? Are you kidding me, John? Well, as Chuck Swindoll points out, John's baptism of repentance required Jews to admit that they had forsaken their covenant with God and to approach him as if for the very first time. I'm going to pause just real quick. Is that better? That, that was significantly worse, actually. <laughs> I think it's better now. Don't touch it. So Chuck Spindle says this, John's baptism of repentance required Jews to admit that they had forsaken their covenant with God and to reproach him as if for the very first time. By submitting to John's baptism, they were essentially admitting that they were no better than Gentiles and they needed a fresh start with God. Talk about a humbling experience for these Jews because Jews saw Gentiles as the lowest of the lows. They're not the favored people. We are. And John says, no, no, no. You need to repent just like the Gentiles. This is a big, big deal. Well, in verse four, Luke continues and he says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What's Luke doing here? He's, he's, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah and what he's saying is that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of these words that were written by Isaiah. In fact, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, will point to John the Baptist as the one who is being described in Isaiah chapter 40. In John chapter 1, this is actually a quote from John the Baptist. When the people were coming to John and saying, who are you? They recognized that John the Baptist is different. He's unique, right? And he's got a unique message. He dresses different. There's something obviously very different about John. So they say, who are you? In John chapter 1, verse 22, they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who've sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said this. 
I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John says, I am the one who was sent to prepare the way for the Lord. I'm the one that's been sent before him. I'm the courier. I'm the herald that's gone before him. In ancient times, when a king was going to go out and to visit you know, different areas of his kingdom, a herald would often be sent ahead of him to announce that the king is coming. It, it, was, a, it was a warning. It was a, a, a call to prepare for the king's arrival. And so work crews would go out in, and they would repair the potholes. They would level the roads. They would get things ready to make things as smooth as possible when the king arrived. People would clean up the streets. They'd clean up their yards because the king is coming to visit, right? I live right along the road where the king's going to come by. I'm not going to leave my trash all just out in front of the road, right? We're going to get ready because the king is coming. And John says, I'm the messenger who's been sent ahead of the king to prepare the people for his arrival. And I'm not talking about filling physical potholes, okay? John's not worried about whether they got a hole in their driveway. It's not what he's concerned about. He is trying to prepare them to clean house, spiritually speaking. He said, you need to repent of your sins, and you need to turn to God. You need to come back to God. And when he comes, we want to be prepared. We want to be prepared. Listen, this is the same message that we have, isn't it? John was sent to warn people that the king is coming the first time. But before Jesus left, he said, I'm coming again. Jesus is going to return. And our job is to prepare people for when the king comes. We don't want them to be caught unaware. We don't want them to be caught not ready to meet the king. Because if he comes and they're not ready, it's too late. It's too late. And so we also have a ministry of, of preparation, preparing people for the king's arrival. So Luke says that John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This, this is the ministry that God has called him to, a ministry of preparation. But now in verse 7, Luke tells us, or, or lets us listen in rather, on John's message. We know his ministry is to prepare people. Let's, let's take a look at his message, because it's, it's a good one. I almost used this as my opening this morning. Verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What a feel-good message. Isn't that awesome? You guys are a bunch of snakes. You're the offspring, the brood of of snakes. Not exactly a a seeker-sensitive service, you know? This is going to really pack the house, right? You know what's funny? It did. The crowds came out to see John preach. It wasn't because it was a seeker-sensitive message. I promise you that. But you know, a couple things. First of all, I don't think John cared what people thought of him. I really don't. I don't think he was like, oh, man, I don't know if they're going to come back next week because I was totally, 
I know I offended them. I know I did, right? I don't think John worried about that. I think the thing that John really worried about is being faithful to the calling that God gave him. God gave him a message. You're going to go, you're going to preach a baptism of repentance. Now go preach it. And he did. And he did it without shame. He preached what God was calling him to do. But I think there's something else here that's not, again, it's not written in Luke. But I believe there's a reason why John's message is so strong right, right here. There was a particular group that was in the crowd that day when John was preaching these words, who I believe John may have been staring at as he spoke these words. Can you imagine that? If right now I just, I just looked over at Doug and I said, you brood of vipers, you son of a snake. That's crazy, right? You guys are all like, man, I'm so glad he's not looking at me, right? John has somebody in mind here. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 3, Matthew tells us that when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, by the way, they're traveling down from Jerusalem, like, you know, 20 miles to go hear this guy, John. Crowds are flocking to him. They're going to check it out. What's the, what's the ruckus down by the Jordan River? And when he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these are, these are two groups of religious leaders of the day who had done more to hurt people's faith than to help them. The Pharisees were incredibly legalistic. They were. They, they added all kinds of rules of what it meant to follow God. They took the joy out of, of living a life for the Lord. But anyway, John sees these guys coming, Right? And by the way, in Matthew, after, after he says that, to the, saw the Pharisees coming, he then goes into the same remarks that we just read in Luke. The same, it's the same exact remarks. John looks at these religious leaders. He says, you guys are a bunch of snakes. You're a brood of vipers, and it's time for you to repent as well. This isn't just a, a call for the, the, the lower people to repent. You Pharisees and Sadducees need to repent as well. And he says, he says, and don't even, don't even, before they can even say, it, don't even start with me with the whole Abraham's our father bit. Okay, don't even go there. Don't even go there because you know what? If, if God wants to, he can raise up followers uh, and, and descendants of Abraham from these rocks. You know, just because you're a descendant of Abraham does not mean that you are one of God's children. That's what he's saying to them. Oh boy, you can bet that the Pharisees and Sadducees did not like that message. You know, many Jews believe that. They believe, hey, we're all good, right? We're descendants of Abraham. It doesn't matter. We do whatever we want. We're covered. We're Abraham's kids. We're special. And John says, I don't think so. I don't think so. By the way, that still happens today, doesn't it? Doesn't that happen today? Have you ever talked to somebody who said, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. I was raised in a Christian house. My grandmother's a Christian. She went to church like five times a week, you know? Unfortunately, that's just not how it works, is it? It's not how it works. Every person needs to decide for themselves, will I repent and follow Jesus? Well, John continues and he says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, listen, you need to pay attention because judgment is coming. Judgment is at the doorstep. You guys need to repent and you need to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Again, I said it before, but true repentance, a true change of mind leads to a change of behavior. It leads to good 
fruit. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Acts chapter 26, verse 20. Paul says this, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That's the message that Paul preached wherever he went. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying. Don't misunderstand what John is saying. We don't produce fruit, right, in order to be saved. We're like, oh, okay, I just I gotta, I gotta work up some good fruit so I can be a Christian, so I can be saved. No, fruit is a demonstration that we are saved. It, it confirms that something real has taken place in us. And by the way, if you don't see fruit in your lives, you have reason to question whether you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean, oh, I stumbled. Oh, must not be a Christian. No, but if, if you don't have fruit developing in your life, you have reason to question and, and, and to get honest and get before God, to repent, turn to Him and say, God, am I really yours? Am I really following you? Because my life looks nothing like the repentance that you described. That fruit is just not evident in my life. Well, when the crowds heard it, they heard John's message. Whether, whether he was talking to them or just talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, they heard it. And they listened. They took him seriously. And in verse 10, we read, And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? In other words, what does this good fruit of repentance look like? What does it look like, John? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. John says that those who follow God will show love and concern for others. It is the natural byproduct of following God, the natural fruit that is evident in the life of someone who is following Him. They're not selfish. They're not stingy. Instead, they share with those who have need. You know, it's interesting. I know a lot of people who are not Christians who are not selfish and not stingy. Does that mean that they're a Christian? Because this looks like it. They're, they share. No, that's not what it means. If you, if, you, if you have this fruit in your life, does that mean you're automatically a Christian? No, but if you don't have this fruit in your life, you probably are not a Christian. In other words, all Christians div, uh, display this type of fruit in their lives. And, and you may be super generous, or you may be just learning how to be generous, but it's, it's the continuum that you're on. You're growing in what it looks like to be a generous, uh, caring, loving person who cares for the needs of others. Well, this totally piqued the interest of two special groups that were gathered in that crowd that day, the tax collectors and the soldiers. Verse 12 says, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what should we do? By the way, it's, it's, a, it's a very respectful thing that the tax collectors are referring to John and calling him teacher. It was a, a sign of respect to John. And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him. By the way, there's a, there's a debate on whether these are, are Roman soldiers or maybe soldiers of the temple guard. I tend to lean towards these were probably temple guard soldiers, probably not Roman soldiers at this point, probably Jews. So anyway, the soldiers said to him, what, what, what shall we do? And he said to them, 
Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. It's good advice. I want you to notice, though, what John doesn't say. Notice what John doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, obviously what you need to do is you need to become exactly like me. Become just like me. Go, go get some camel's hair clothing, get yourself a leather belt, eat some honey, some locusts, and come live in the wilderness. That's what you should do. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, well, obviously you need to quit your job and go do something different. I think we might expect that, right, based on who's asking. The tax collectors, these are the most hated people, right, because they were seen as sellouts. They were working for Rome and, 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 and taking money from their Jewish brothers and sisters. So you might expect him to say, well, obviously you need to get done doing that. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. Instead, he tells them, keep doing your same job, but do your job differently. You know, I think sometimes people come to Christians like, okay, so what do I, I'm supposed to become a pastor now, right? I'm supposed to become a missionary. I'm supposed to, I got to quit my job that I'm doing now and do a different job. No, do the job you're currently doing, but do it differently. Do it like you're a child of the king. Do your job differently. John says, you want to know what good fruit looks like? You want to know what it looks like? It looks like living your life to serve others instead of yourself. It looks like extending compassion to those who are in need or hurting. It looks like being joyful. It looks like being content with what you have instead of always wanting more, 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 more. Be generous, he says. Be honest. Be caring. This is the fruit of God that is manifested in the life of someone who has turned to God in repentance. In one word, you know what it looks like? Jesus, right? This is, this is describing Jesus. They don't know that yet. In verse 15, Luke continues. He says, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. They're looking at him like, this guy is so different. He must be the Messiah. This is, this, the Messiah is here. It's, it must be John. It must be. Verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John says, Let, let's, let's go ahead and, and put and put that thought to rest, okay? I am not the Messiah. John's whole ministry was pointing people to Jesus. He didn't want the glory for himself. It's not about John, is it? He said, he must increase and I must decrease. It was always about pointing people to Jesus. He said, I'm just the messenger. I'm just the one who goes before him to prepare you for his coming. And when he arrives, you're going to see for yourselves that he is far, far, far greater than me. John says, I, I'm not even worthy to, to, to untie his sandals. It's like the most menial task, right? He says, I'm not even worthy to do that compared to, to the coming Messiah. There's no comparison between us. He says, I, I baptize you with water, a symbol of your repentance and your turning to God. But, but the Messiah, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
My baptism is just a preparation for the baptism that is coming with the king. Now, I should tell you that there is a considerable amount of debate as to what John means by Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. In particular, the debate centers around what John means by fire. Is it a good thing? Some people think so. Some people think that this is, this is uh, some sort of talking about maybe the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And, or is it connected with judgment? Some people think that. Here's where I land. Based on the immediate context here in chapter 3, and by the way, rule of biblical uh, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the, the interpretation of Scripture. The first place you look when trying to interpret what, a, what something means is you look at the immediate context, right? And, and the word fire is used multiple times here in this context, right? So for me, based on the immediate context here in chapter 3 and the way that the fire is being used in, in every other occurrence in this passage, I believe that this baptism of fire that he is describing is the judgment that is going to come to those who do not repent and turn to the Messiah as their Lord and Savior. Remember, he's talking to crowds. Some of them are turning and repenting. Others are like the Pharisees and Sadducees are like, ain't no way. Ain't no way. And he's looking at the crowd. He's saying, he's coming. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In in verse 9, John said, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Is that a blessing or is that judgment? That's judgment. He was warning them that judgment's coming. And again, in verse 17, John says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Is that a blessing or is that judgment? It's judgment. Winnowing fork. Winnowing fork. It's, uh, we talked about this, I think, during the Joseph series. We talked about the idea that a winnowing fork is like kind of like a pitchfork, right? And, and what they would do is they would take the, the, the grain and they would toss it into the air, right? And the wind, either with a, a winnowing fan or the, the winds coming off the Mediterranean, they'd toss in the air, and the wind would carry the chaff, which was lighter, it would blow it through, and then the grain, the wheat, would fall down to the floor of the threshing floor, okay? And what John is saying is that the, the Messiah is coming with a winnowing fork in his hand. He's going to separate the wheat and the chaff. He's going to separate those who repent and those who do not. Some are going to receive a baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're going to receive eternal life. Others are going to be baptized with fire in judgment. And the the, the reality is, it's up to you. It's up to you. You decide, which one am I going to be? Am I going to be the one who is baptized with the Holy Spirit or am I going to be baptized with fire? You don't get to sit on the fence with Jesus. It's one or the other. You're either a follower of his or, or you're not. Which one? am I? Which one are you? Well, verse 18, Luke says that with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. This is good news. You're like, it doesn't sound like good news. (laughs) It's very good news. He just got done telling you that there's salvation available. The Holy Spirit is going to be given to those who repent and turn to him. You don't have to stay in, in a place of judgment of God. You can receive salvation through Jesus Christ. And so John continued to preach this this word that God had given him, calling people to baptism of repentance and preparing their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. Many people received his, his words. 
and many people rejected it. And again, we can get focused on what they did, but really the more important question for each of us is what are we going to do? Am I going to reject him or am I going to accept him? Which is it going to be? And I would just say this, if, if you're questioning and you're, you're wondering about these things, you're not sure where you stand, you know, please talk to Pastor Henry, talk to myself, you know, talk to somebody here who you know is a committed follower of Jesus and ask them to, to, to sit down with you and pray and, and talk about this. But it's too important of a decision to not take seriously. It's too important. As we close... Luke is going to end this, this section that we're looking at uh, about John with a, a brief statement, it's really brief, about Herod Antipas. Remember, Herod Antipas is the one who is ruling up in the area of Galilee. And he's going to talk about the way that, that Herod reacted to John's call to repentance. Verse 19 says, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, by John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. Now, both Matthew and Mark, and you can, you can go read these uh, this week. Both Matthew and Mark uh, write considerably more uh, about what took place between John and Herod Antipas. Luke is very brief here. Basically, what happens is John confronts Herod Antipas, the, the Tetrarch of Galilee, because of the sinful relationship that he had by marrying his brother's wife. So he takes his brother's wife away from him and he marries her. And John says, this is not right. He calls Herod out for this. And Herod did not respond with repentance. Herod was like, oh, you know, you're right. You're so right, John. I'm such a doofus. No. No, instead, he digs in his heels like so many of us do when we're confronted with sin in our lives, right? You're like, oh, I would never do that. Of course you would. We all do. It's, it's, a, it's a natural reaction sometimes to get defensive versus saying, you know what? I am wrong. I was wrong. He didn't repent. Instead, he throws John in prison. Eventually, eventually he's going to have John beheaded from that prison. John died for doing what God called him to do. John was called to bring a baptism of repentance, to preach repentance to the people, and it got his head taken off. I don't think John minded at all. He did what he was called to do. That's what John cared about. Let me just close with this. John's call to repentance is so, so, so important. Repentance is a key component of preparing our hearts to hear and to follow Jesus. It's important initially when you first come to him. And listen to me, just because you're a follower of Christ doesn't mean you're not going to continue to struggle with sin, right? I mean, I, I still struggle with sin. Do you still struggle with sin? Oh, good. I'm not the only one. Good. So when we sin, we can confess. We can turn away from that and turn to him, right? Repentance is so important for keeping that communication line open with God. Failure to repent, failure to turn from your sins puts up a huge roadblock in your relationship with God. Some of you are like, man, I, have, I don't understand. I don't have a relationship with God. I don't understand why I, I don't hear Him. I don't understand why I don't... Where are you at with the sin in your life? Just, just 
Just take the time to say, is God convicting me? Is there an area of my life that I need to repent of and turn to him and get that garbage cleaned up to repair this line of communication between me and the Lord? Communication, uh, repentance is so, so, so important. In Luke chapter 7, stealing from a future message, okay? Luke chapter 7, Jesus is speaking to a crowd. Ironically, it has something to do with, with some people that are, have come to talk to him that were sent by John the Baptist. And in verses 29 and 30, and in parentheses, we've got this awesome statement. Let's just read it together. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. Why? Because they had been baptized by John. In other words, they had received John's call to repentance. They had repented. They had turned from the sins and turned to God. And when they heard Jesus' words, they said, God is right. Jesus is right. We believe. We hear what you're saying, Jesus. We agree. Because they had repented. Now look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Why? Because they had not been baptized by John. They refused to repent, and therefore, they were not prepared to hear the words of Jesus. Repentance is so, so, so important. The difference between those who received and those who rejected the words of Jesus was repentance. That's the difference. And I'll just say this, if you believe that God this morning is calling you to change your mind, to turn away and to go in a different direction, I urge you to say yes. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't reject it. Say, yes, I repent. I'm going to turn away from those things and I'm going to turn to God. And again, if you have questions about that, please don't, don't just walk out the door, get in your car and drive away. We're here. I'll be here after the service. Come and talk with me. Come and talk to, talk to Eric. He's one of our elders. You know, talk, to, talk to Pastor Henry. Talk to somebody here that you know has a relationship with Jesus. And we'll sit down. We can talk together. We can pray together. And you can make today the day that you decide to turn away and to turn to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for John, your servant. If he was here right now, he'd say, don't talk about me, Chris. Talk about Jesus. And so we thank you for the way that John pointed people and prepared them for you. God, thank you that, that we can turn away from our sins and turn to you. And you are, you, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness according to 1 John. What a gift that we can receive salvation through your son, Jesus. And God, I pray today that if there's somebody here who who has never turned to you, that today would be the day they would turn to you. And if, if, if there are brothers and sisters here who, yes, they know you, but they have to admit that maybe they haven't been following you. Maybe there's sin in their lives that they need to deal with. God, I pray that today they would deal with that with you, that they would not put this off, but that they would confess their sin to you, and that you would forgive them, restore them, open that line of communication that might hear clearly from you. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.